This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Friday show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, life questions, uh, what we believe, why we believe as Christians, whatever's on your heart. Uh, all you have to do is call us and I'll do my best. You can dial 210 210- Three four zero ninety five eighty five. That's three four zero ninety five eighty five. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll free at eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Numerically, that's six three zero five seven five seven. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. There'll be one button. You just have to push it. It says, call now. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Because it's Friday, it means we get to go to church tonight here at Calvary Chapel. We get to go this weekend. And I pray that wherever you go to church, you're going for one reason. Well, let me say two reasons. To learn more about Jesus and to find a way to serve him by serving his people. When you go to church on Sunday, or if it's like us, Friday, or maybe your church has services on Saturday, um, just look for opportunities to minister the love of God, the comfort of God to others. I always promise you it'll change your church experience forever, uh, and that's the privilege that we have on our weekend services. Tonight I'm going to be teaching, uh, I'm finishing the chapter in First Peter chapter 2. And then on Sunday here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be finishing Luke chapter 23. Uh, Jesus um, has breathed his last. And now he's going to be buried in the tomb of a rich man. Uh, And there's some interesting dynamics going on there. And then finally, we get to the final chapter in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Next week, I think we've been in it for like a year and a half. And we're going to be in next Sunday, a week from this week. Uh, We're going to be in uh, the resurrection chapter. And, you know, as hard as it is to watch Jesus suffer on the cross, as difficult and painful as it is to see how people reacted to him, um, we know that Sunday's coming and the tomb is going to be empty. Well, let me get to questions while we wait for your phone calls and questions. Um, Here is a question from Philip. He said, who do you recommend for information on the age of the earth? 
Um, Philip, um, um, the book of Genesis is is my my best recommendation. Uh, we're we're actually in the book of Genesis. We just started it. I've spent a great deal of the first two Bible studies. Um, Wednesday night was the second, but talking about the age of the earth as being a young earth, uh, and I think a literal reading and a literal interpretation of Genesis. Um, you can't come to any other conclusion. But uh, you want something else. Uh, I recommend highly John Lennox, um, uh, the uh, Institute of Creation Research is also good. There's a whole bunch of stuff out there about the age of the earth. What you want to do is you want to find people who are not making excuses and, and calling the earth like millions or billions of years old. Just just people exegeting the passages. I think Philip the Holy Spirit goes out of his way to indicate that these are six 24-hour days, literal 24-hour days. Six of them, not, not spread out over ages or epochs of time, but literal days. There was evening and morning the first day. There was evening and morning the second day. I, I think the Holy Spirit is saying, how can I make it any more simple? So um, um, my commentary is available online at calvaryessay.com, as are the studies I'm doing, Philip. Um, but you want somebody really smart, John Lennox. Uh, he's part of uh, RZIM, but he also travels all over the country. And he is absolutely wonderful and very entertaining in the process. There's a whole bunch of his stuff available on YouTube. There's there's a lot more out there than that. All you have to do is Google it. But uh, those are two that I can recommend. Henry Morris is also excellent as well. One says, Pastor Ron, is it okay to divorce to divorce if your unbelieving spouse leaves you? Um, one, yeah, it is okay. Um, uh, of course it's okay. If the unbeliever leaves, let him leave, 1 Corinthians 7 says. And and the unbeliever, um, by leaving, is breaking the covenant. Now, it's not something that we do to sort of manipulate behind the scenes to make him or her leave. Um, but if they leave and they're unbelieving, God is simply giving you the freedom to pursue um, you, your walk with him with all of your heart and with all of your strength, without the division that comes in an unequally yoked home. One, this is the reason that I speak so often about unequally yoked couples. That's why we, we, we and they don't listen, but that's okay, but we try to tell our people, our young kids, don't even consider dating somebody who doesn't love Jesus as much or more than you do. Don't even consider it. The truth is we can get involved emotionally with a lot of different people and when our emotions get involved, um, we, we lose our common sense. So in your case, it is okay to divorce if the unbelieving spouse leaves you. Then you're free not to pursue other relationships. Once you're divorced, uh, then you're free to do that. But remember, that's not why you would be divorcing the unbelieving spouse. You'd be doing it to free you to serve the Lord. And you want to make sure that if and when the time comes to involve yourself in another relationship or possibly even get married again, Juan, um, then what you do is um, you make sure that it is an, a believer this time. Um, make sure it's done the right way. Make sure the 
uh, courtship or whatever you want to call it, the dating process, make sure that that is is done honorably and, and with purity of heart, mind, and body. Uh, and then the Lord is free to lead you and guide you. Uh, you don't have to divorce, um, but it is okay. That's your question. It is okay to divorce if the unbelieving spouse leaves you. And then, one, you have a real ministry telling other people who are involved with unbelievers and thinking about marrying them, you can tell them, don't do it, don't do it, because believe me, this is a part of Scripture, First Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, that that overwhelmingly, the more majority of people who are single in the church of Jesus Christ completely ignore. And the pain that we've dealt with, the pain that we've counseled people through with unbelievers and believers being together in a relationship is indescribably horrible. So I hope that helps. Cliff says, did the church replace Israel in the overall plan of God? Um, Cliff, no. In fact, read Ephesians chapter 2. God talks about his secret plan. It's a mystery that was revealed to the Apostle Paul. I love the fact that Paul got these mysteries. There were four of them. The Greek word is mysterion, and it means something not yet disclosed to his people. And yet God gave these mysteries to Paul. And one of them was that Israel and the church becoming one body, the people of God. So the church did not replace Israel in the overall plan of God. It's just that God brought Jews out of Judaism, and he brought men and women Gentiles out of willful sin and out of being enemies of God. And then by the power of his Spirit, he brought them back together. The great example of this very early in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, when Peter is summoned by God to go to the house of Cornelius. Jews didn't go into Gentile homes. And yet Peter knew what he was called to do. When he got there, he knocked on the door and said, okay, I'm here. Why did you tell me to come? And Cornelius said, an angel appeared to me in a dream and told me to send for you. And so we're here to listen to to, to what you have to say and to do it, to obey it. And that was the entry of Gentiles into what it, up to that time had been an entirely Jewish church. Now, Cliff, there are a lot of people, and they are, um, th- this borders on blasphemy and heresy. But there are a lot of people, remember the enemy hates Jews, Israel always has, and they have concluded that since Israel rejected their Messiah, God is done with Israel, and now his attention is focused solely on the church. Well, Romans 9, 10, and 11 talks about that. Paul speaks about it. Jesus speaks about it. We're the unnatural branches, Gentiles. They're the natural ones. How much more readily will they be grafted in? And so God's promises to Israel, everyone will come to pass exactly as the Lord promised it. Everyone, he won't miss one. If, if God could violate one promise to Abraham, then he could violate his promises to us. If that were the case, we wouldn't be saved because we wouldn't have a holy, perfect God. 
And so let me say unequivocally, Cliff, the, the, the doctrinal, the horrible teaching that the church replaced Israel, that God is done with Israel, is evil to the core. It is satanic. We need to be on guard against that. Don't boast over those because, well, we now believe. Now, they've always been the apple of God's eye and they always will be. And Ephesians chapter 2 begins the process of bringing the church and Jews together to make one body, making two into one. And this now is the family of God. You know, Cliff, we can't forget that our heritage, our Savior for sure, but, but our heritage, all of the apostles were Jewish. You can't imagine how Jews and Gentiles hated one another. And yet, in the love of God, he brought those two together to make them one. And now we've got people professing to be a part of the church who are now trying to make us two again, and that's simply not the case. So the church did not replace Israel. Um, the promises that were made to Israel will be fulfilled completely in the millennial reign. Uh, and then once we're in heaven, we'll all be the same. 340-9585 for your live calls. Fridays are sometimes slow. We'd love your calls. Here's a question from Corey. Uh, is it possible for an unmarried man to be a pastor? First Timothy says he must be the husband of one wife. Uh, of course, you know, uh, Paul, who wrote the letter to Timothy, uh, was an unmarried man. So, of course, it's okay for an unmarried man to be a pastor. Um, Timothy is, or, or Paul to Timothy, is just dealing with the custom of the time where men married multiple wives and and should somebody be called out of the, the, the world uh, and come to Christ, they, they, then they have to decide which wife that was going to be their wife and ostensibly that would be the first. Uh, but, but the idea there is a, a one-woman man. In other words, a pastor must be committed to one woman. Now, Corey, if a pastor is not married, um, that doesn't mean he has to be married. Or if somebody is a single man who is um, pastoring a church, he's, he's, if that's what his calling is, then that's the will of God. Now, I can tell you a couple of things. Let me tell you this first. It would be really difficult, if not impossible, for me to do what I do without Paula. She is my partner in this ministry in every way. She is the one that I go to counsel for first, She's the one who gets brought into my heart and into my thought process regarding um, um, decisions, important decisions that need to be made. I always want her because she knows me and my heart better than anybody. I need her involvement. And that's before I go to my elders or the other pastors. Um, um, so uh, it, it would be really, really difficult. Uh, having said that, we've got a Calvary Chapel pastor in San Marcos his name is Eric, really great guy, and he's a single man, and he feels like he's called to be single. Now, I, God may change his mind or heart, but he's been pastoring that church now for, I don't know, 10, 12 years, and, um, and he's still single. So 
uh, yes, there's no prohibition against a single man um, being a pastor of a church. So hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Leo. Pastor Ron, what is the essential reason homosexuality is wrong? It doesn't make sense to me that God wouldn't want people to be in love. Well, Leo, there's a couple of things. God makes the rules. I said the other night in my Genesis study, um, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Um, and, you know, people don't want to change the rules. You know, when you can say, let there be light, and light comes out of the darkness, then you get to make the rules. But until then, God makes the rules. So God says it's wrong. And that's really important. As a believer, and you're writing into this program as a Christian radio show, as a believer, Leo, you don't have to know why. All you have to know is what God says. And if God says that something is wrong, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, and that's just dealing with human sexuality, they're wrong because God says it's wrong. Now that it doesn't make sense that God wouldn't want people to be in love. You know what God wants, Leo? God wants people in heaven. And perverted love is not really love at all. I understand lust. I understand attraction. I know we live in a fallen world. I know, in spite of how it may sound to some, I know that that we're never going to go backwards. We're not going to go back to the way things used to be. I know that as the day for Jesus' return nears, People are going to become more emboldened in their rebellion against God. Paul warns Timothy of that very thing. And yet what God would have you as a believer, Leo, say to somebody is that Jesus said to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. So what God wants is people to be in heaven. God could care less about a sexuality. Sexuality was given to us by the one who created us. Sexuality was a gift from God, and it was intended to be enjoyed. However, it has to be enjoyed on his terms. And our world, Leo, has lost the fear of God. And so two people of the same sex who are in love, are really just in lust. Again, I understand the attraction. I do. I understand. We live in a world that encourages people to pursue ungodly relationships. But as Christians, we've got to decide whose side we're on. If you had friends, Leo, that were involved in a homosexual relationship, Wouldn't you want them in heaven? Wouldn't you tell them the truth? Because Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, both say that people live like that, and there's a whole list of other lifestyles, so I'm not picking on homosexuality. That's just your question. But people who live like that won't inherit the kingdom of God. Is it worth having your friends go to hell? Or do you love him enough to tell him the truth? You know, God's left us here, Christians, Leo. He's left us here so that we can tell people the good news about being saved. We can have new life. 
And all you have to do, Leo, is look at the lives of people involved in these ungodly lifestyles. They're bold. They're willfully rebellious. But they're not happy. And that's because God won't let them be happy. So, Leo, I hope that makes sense to you. Again, I'm assuming that you're a believer, but you've got to decide, do you believe Jesus or do you believe the world that we live in? Ginny. Ginny says, some people say Jesus only died for the elect. What do you say? Ginny, I say this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now there's no way with honest scholarship that you can twist that into saying that the world and all the people in it really means the elect. Only those that God chose. That's simply impossible as you exegete the text. It's that simple. That's John 3.16 of course. And that's the only answer you really need. Stop listening to people who are going to to sort of distort Jesus' nature and his character and his own words. You know, I've often, Jenny, and you're talking about Calvinists, of course. Um, There's no way one could read the Bible and come up with the conclusion that God only loves some people and only died for some people. Jesus' death was efficacious for everyone who's ever lived in the face of the earth. But his death and his subsequent resurrection was only efficient or effective for those who believe. It's that simple. Many are called and few are chosen. The many is everybody. But few are chosen. Those who are chosen are those of us who use our own free will to choose him back. And this is an important doctrinal issue for you to wrestle through. But you have to be really, really careful to take the Bible at face value And there's not a single Calvinist who can, in context, justify their statement that Jesus died only for the elect. They can do it with some illogical leaps of reasoning. Well, God chose some for heaven. That means he must have chosen some for hell. Election is never mentioned in your Bible relative to anything other than salvation, Jenny. So wrestle with this. It's very, very important. Okay? You might do take my study. Um, you can go to Romans chapter 9. Um, and I did a, an in-depth study on this very issue. Uh, and you can get that at calvarysa.com. I think we got time for one more before the break. This is a question from Gabriel. Um, Pastor Ron, what are your thoughts on Christians who keep Torah? 
Um, Gabriel, my thoughts, and I'm going to say this kindly, I hope, I, I intend it that way, but my thoughts are those are usually really miserable Christians. Now, there are Christians, uh, Messianic Christians, there are some Gentile Christians who try to keep Torah. But instead of recognizing what the law really was intended to do, lead us to Christ by showing us our complete inability to keep the law. What we do is we just try to justify ourselves by making a a set of rules, and we're going to follow those rules. The truth of the matter is we can't please God by keeping rules. Jews who were law keepers got saved. The Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost and beyond. And they became Christians. Now part of the division in the early church before Acts chapter 10, which I mentioned earlier, part of that division was caused by uh, Jews who give their life to Christ, but they thought, well, I'm Jewish, I've still got to keep the law, I've still got to keep the Sabbath, I've still got to be circumcised, all those things. And Jesus, Gabriel, set us free from the old covenant of law. So, if you find a Christian who is intent on keeping Torah, that's a frustrated man or woman. Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, it is for freedom we've been set free. We've been set free from the law of sin and death, and we've been given new life in the covenant the new covenant that Jesus presented. Anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. How do you please Jesus? Absent tour? You just hang out with him. Gabriel, hope that helps. We've got 30 minutes left in our week. 340-9585 or 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand in for life. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the show. We have 30 minutes left in the week. 340-9585. My prayers have been answered. We have Ola calling from San Antonio on line one. Ola, thanks for calling. It's good to hear from you. Good to hear from you too, Pastor Ron. Thank you so much. I happy Valentine's to you and Mama Paula and to everybody listening. Thank you. I I do have a question. Okay, so my question is in, in twofold. There's this uh, this guy. I don't follow him, but you know, I I hear about him. Uh, is is in Nigeria, so he, he you know talks about the gospel. But he, he twists a lot, and I don't agree with mm-hmm. him. But he, recently he's been talking about the name of Jesus Christ and saying that Jesus Christ is not actually the name of the Savior. He agrees that his name is Yeshua Amasiak. You know, the, I think that's the Hebrew name. Um, but he 
now says, you know, that the name Jesus is not the actual name of our Savior. And then the second part of it is, I think yesterday or so, uh, maybe a couple of days now, he uh, said that um, that Lucifer is the bright morning star. And I always thought Jesus was a bright morning star. So I was, I was listening to your answer on the, on the, you know, off the phone. But if you will please just give me more knowledge uh, on this topic. Yeah, I can do that, Ola. Thank you very, very much. And Paul and I keep you in our prayers. God bless you. Um, let me answer the second one first. It's, it's the quickest. Um, uh, Lucifer is, in his creation, referred to as the bright morning star. He was the, uh, the light bearer. He was the, the, the Ezekiel 28, uh, the most beautiful of all of God's uh, created angels. Um, and so in his unfallen state, that's the reference. But uh, obviously that's no longer the case. We also know that Jesus is called our bright morning star. Uh, and... Um, I don't, there's no contradiction. There's no conflict there. It's not um, a certain translator trying to, to remove the deity or, or assign anything less than deity to the Lord. So um, just as you read it, understand that, that Lucifer was created that way. Ezekiel 28 will give you the passage. Um, but at the same time, um, he has lost his position, of course, and now has become... Uh, the devil, the enemy of God. The the other question is silly. Um, not not your question is silly, but but that people would be debating of it. Um, uh, Jesus is the Greek transliteration of Yeshua, uh, the Messiah. Um, so um, it, 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 just like we translate other foreign words into English, or in this case to Greek. Um, there's differences. There's no J sound in in Hebrew, uh, so a J would be a Ye, um, Yeshua. Um, but remember, Joshua was another transliteration of the name. Um, but Jesus is is that's just sort of what in English what the, the Greek translators or the Greek authors of the New Testament would call him. Um, you know, it's interesting, Ola, in, in one place there is a, a, a disciple named Jesus who is called Justice. Uh, in the first century, um, after Jesus' death and resurrection, people who had the name Jesus, it was a very, very common name. And people who had that name would then refer to themselves as something else just out of respect for the real Jesus. But uh, there's nothing sinister there. It's simply... Um, the Greek transliteration of the Jewish name uh, Yeshua or Joshua, Yahshua, and uh, that's all we need to know. Now, I think I know, I'm not going to say the name because I'm not 100% sure, but I think I know the guy you're listening to, and he is pretty much um, um, coming from a really, really uh, bad doctrinal place. Uh, he's not somebody that you listen to. He's... Uh, uh, more in line with the health and prosperity gospel message, um, uh, so so be just be careful. You're you're discerning enough to know the difference that's been proven by the questions that you're asking, um, but but there's really no value in listening to this guy because you're going to find Ola that he just isn't very solid uh, at all. 
In Revelation 22, verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. So that's all we need to know, Ola. Thank you very, very much. It's always good to hear from you. 340-9585. Here is a question from Gina. She said, how would you dissuade a friend who is thinking about converting to Catholicism? You know what I would do, Gina, is I would sit down with them and and go through the book of Hebrews. Um, uh, Paul, who I believe to be the author of Hebrews, was essentially doing the same thing in that entire passage of Scripture. Now, it wasn't Christians converting to Catholicism. It was Jewish converts to Christianity who, because of persecution, were getting tired of it. And, you know, they're just figuring out a way that they could stop the persecution. And the way that they could do it is to return to Judaism. And Paul says, where else are you going to go? Where else are you going to go? And, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of young people now who seem to be um, trying to find um, Jesus in liturgical churches, and the Catholic Church certainly is a liturgical church. And they're, they're you know, with its old, its ancient, its original uh, group of believers, which it's not, by the way. Um, and so th- th- these are the real Christians, and they go in and they get goosebumps with all of the, the liturgy. But, but the, the truth of the matter is, is they're leaving a pure gospel of freedom and walking into a gospel that's not a gospel at all. It's not good news. Every time I answer questions about Catholicism, I want people to understand there are some Catholics who are genuinely saved, just not many. Religion, and that's what Catholicism is, and the Catholic Church will tell you they're the way to heaven. And if you get somebody to be really honest, they will confess to you that they don't consider... Uh, people like us, real believers, that the church is the way. Well, of course, we know that Jesus is the way. So, Gina, that's all you can do. Just say, you know, Paul was warning them not to go back to religion. What are you going to do for the sacrifice of your sins? Why would you go to a priest when the Bible says there's one man between us and God, the man Christ Jesus, one mediator? Why would we go backwards? Why would we pray to saints? Why would we buy Catholic doctrine? Why would we believe that Mary remained a virgin when the Bible tells us completely different? So these are the things that we really have to to consider carefully. And the truth of the matter is, I'm going to take a risk here, Gina. Um... Most professing Christians who end up converting to Catholicism or considering it probably don't have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. They're trying to approach him on the basis of works. They're trying to approach him um, on their terms instead of on his terms. Religion has always been man's attempt to reach up to God. We can't reach that high. That's why Jesus came down. You know, Gina, when I got saved... 29 years ago this month. If Jesus hadn't come down, I never would have gotten saved. I mean, he reached down to me at my lowest point and delivered me from the pit of hell. And he took me in the middle of all of my filth 
He didn't make me do things. He didn't make me join a church. He just met me and invited me to come to him. And I did. There's no place where the Catholic Church reaches down far enough to reach to us. Nor can Catholics reach up by the things that they do or by their associations with other Catholics or with the church to reach their way to God. We live in a Catholic community, so these are questions that we need to deal with, but pray for your friend. Share with them who the real Jesus is because it's clear they don't know him. But in the end, all you can do is pray. Paul says, oop, I got a call, so let me go here first. I've got Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. I know you're hearing a lot from me lately. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I still sing these songs uh, that this one Christian artist I used to, uh, I, I went to uh, listen to him a lot. And I still sing them sometimes. And I was wondering, it's, is it, I sing it from my heart and I sing it to God. Jesus, you know, and uh, um, but that Christian artist in 2009, he came out and said that he that he is a uh, homosexual, and that he was trying. He tried for the longest time to be straight and all this, but or be normal, and he said he just couldn't take it no more. And he just came out and said he was homo. So I still sing his songs at times. Do you think that's okay or? Well, I know my heart says it's all right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy, listen, listen to your heart. You know, um, as long as, as as the truth is coming from your heart, it doesn't matter. I mean, the words still have value. Um, all we know is that they didn't have any value for him. When he wrote those words, emotionally he may have been trying to convince himself, but the truth is he didn't really believe them. I think I know who you're talking about, and... Um, you know, this is what's happening in the world that we live in. Uh, the, the, the falling away has begun, and, and lots of professing Christians, a lot of famous people, especially in, in the theater and in, in music, are deciding that, well, now we can do things our way. You know, the Bible says that Jesus is the author and the finisher of your faith, so if he actually begins it, he's going to finish it. When we turn away... 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 says that we turned away because we didn't really belong to him in the first place. So um, you're, you're not gay. Uh, you can sing those words with a heart and, and it'll make a beautiful song to the Lord. Uh, but maybe one of the things that you can do every time you, that song comes to your mind and you begin to sing it, you might throw in a prayer for this guy's salvation that he might might really get saved. So uh, nothing wrong with you singing it. Um, lots of good songs have been written um, by people who who eventually walked away from the Lord altogether. So it's okay. You keep singing it, but just throw a prayer in for that particular guy. And this is a problem that we're we're seeing over and over and over. Jimmy, it's always good to hear from you. Don't worry about calling too much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's the question from Paul that I began. He says, are there any limits to obeying governing authorities according to Romans chapter 13? Um, Yeah, Paul, the limits are always there. You know, when Peter uh, and the disciples 
uh, were ordered by the, the governing authorities in Jerusalem not to preach in this name anymore. Peter said, um, you know, you decide whether it's right for us to obey you or to obey God. So uh, we have to obey the governing authorities until what they ask us to do contradicts what God has told us to do. That's important. If somebody comes to you as a, as a, as a government official and says that you have to engage in, in sinful behavior or, or you, you have to abort children if you've had more than two children, or, or I'm just using extreme examples, or maybe somebody tells you that you can't um, share Jesus with people in the streets. It's a time coming, Paul, in our world where uh, declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be considered hate speech. When that time comes, we then can no longer obey the governing authorities. That's when we have to take a stand. Now, it's going to cost a lot to do it. You know, I'm an old guy. Um, I tell the church here and Pastor Ken, who's, who will eventually take over for me, I tell uh, people all the time that, that he's going to run into um, um, legal hurdles that, that I'm probably not going to have to deal with. And um, a decision has to be made. What are we going to do? On whose side will we be? So um, obey the, the governing authorities. Paul says that they've been put here uh, as a blessing, a gift from God. Now, they're not always godly people. We know that. But uh, remember when Paul wrote that, and I'm going to deal with this a little bit tonight in uh, my first Peter chapter 2 study, uh, right at the beginning. Peter says, submit to the governing authorities. And, and the governing authority for him and for Paul was Caesar Nero, one of the most wicked people ever ever who set foot on this earth and, and certainly a demon-possessed man. And yet the institution of government is a good thing. It's a gift from God. It brings order. So we submit to governing authorities unless and until what the government tells us to do conflicts with what God tells us to do. Now, it doesn't mean that we can use, well, the government's pro-abortion, so... I'm not going to pay taxes. That, you can't do that. But we take a stand for Jesus. And when the government asks us not to, we say, I'm sorry. I'm going to do what God tells me to do. So I hope that answers your question, Paul. Thank you very, very much. Phil's question says, I have a friend who is a Lutheran who says he doesn't have to serve at church because his service for Jesus is his job. That doesn't sound right to me. Well, it's not right, Phil. The Lutherans uh, have a um, um, uh, sort of a, a vocational service outlook. Uh, God has given us gifts, and we go and we serve God by being a good witness, by being a good worker. Well, we're to do that all anyway. But we still need to serve the body. Now, we don't need to serve the body to get saved. And Lutherans, the Lutherans that I've spoken with about this issue, they, well, well, see, you're in a works mentality. We come to church to get blessed, to participate in the in the Eucharist. We come to church to to uh, to hear the gospel. But you see, church is a body, and a body serves itself. Can you imagine if you had a, a, a really bad itch on your head, and you went to use your hand to scratch it, but your hand said, "No, I'm not going to do that." We're a body. 
And we need one another. We need to be serving one another. Jesus washed feet, and he says, I've done this as an example for you. Go wash some dirty feet. So uh, a Lutheran understanding is sort of a lazy approach. Uh, Are we serving God at our jobs? Of course we are. But we do it by having a great attitude. We do it by working as unto the Lord. We we give a, a fair amount of work for whatever pay we're getting. Um, we share Jesus when the opportunity comes. Um, all that's important. But, you know, we do that at HEB too. We do that uh, wherever we go. But when you go to church, Phil, serving is part of the body. And when people begin serving, that's when their walk with the Lord becomes really abundant. It becomes really, really fruitful. It's when God gives you the opportunity to use the gifts he's given you to flow through you to others. That's what being a part of a body is all about. And I can't imagine. By the way, this is one of the reasons that Lutheran churches are so dead. It's just go, come back, and, and, and it's one of the reasons that the, the denominational churches are perishing before our very eyes. The book of Acts is the true church of Jesus Christ. That's the model we've been given. And they never stopped serving one another. They never stopped studying. They never stopped praying together. It wasn't about going to church. And boy, that's what we've made it. You know, Phil, one of the things, and I'm going to brag a little bit about our church. One of the things I think that makes our church different is that people here get that. I don't know why they get it. I mean, we teach the Bible verse by verse. But the Holy Spirit has brought us people. We've never had a problem getting people to serve. Never. I've had pastors ask me to speak at their churches. Well, everybody serves at your church. Maybe you can get them to serve at our church. No, that's something that just sort of comes through the teaching of the Word and the example set by leadership. But your friend who says he doesn't have to serve if you would objectively look at his life, there's probably not a whole lot of joy, not a whole lot of abundant life that Jesus promised us. Randy wants to know, should Christians consider evolution or Big Bang theories as even credible? Um, Randy, the answer, the short answer is no. Um, I've been talking about this a lot um, um, for the last couple of weeks because we're just starting the book of Genesis on Wednesday nights. Um, the, 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 a Big Bang Theory. I want you to think about this for a moment. There was pressure that built up or the primordial ooze was building up and suddenly it just exploded because of the pressure. And uh, all this magnificent beauty was the result. It's like junk went up into the air. I, I used this example the other night in my study. It's like you go to a junkyard and have a big explosion, and when all the, the pieces of junk settle in the in the place, you've got a Cadillac dealership. That's just that's just not possible. So no, evolution or Big Bang theories is not credible. Can you imagine evolution? We all remember the pictures in our science books of Neanderthal men and how we would get more and more upright. Can you imagine God creating that and saying, "Now that's good. That's very good." No, Randy, if Adam and Eve aren't the first two humans ever born, ever created by God, um, then then our whole faith is lost to us. 
So really hope that makes sense. Let's go to line one for an anonymous call. Anonymous, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask you a quick question. Uh, what does the Bible say about like a man gets a vasectomy? I just hang up and I'll listen. Okay. Uh, anonymous, the Bible doesn't say anything about a vasectomy. If you have had children and you don't want any more children and your sexuality is dedicated to the Lord, there's nothing wrong with getting um, a vasectomy, using that as birth control, any more than uh, using birth control pills or condoms or anything else is sinful. The Bible just doesn't speak about it. It wouldn't be something in an ancient culture that the writers of the Bible would have concerned their, themselves with. One of the reasons there were so many big families uh, in the Old Testament, by the way, it's one of the reasons that there were men married many women uh, was because they, um, they they needed big families. That's how they protected themselves. That's how they got workers, and it was a lot of work. So no problem, um, Anonymous. Thank you for calling. Uh, last call. We've got three minutes. Let's go to Robert on line two. Robert, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Uh, just wanted to uh, give you an update. If you remember, I was calling in a few months every so often concerning my granddaughter, Jada. Who, uh, yeah, Robert, I was... Yeah, Robert, let me stop you for a moment. I was just, Paul and I were praying for you yesterday, uh, just just hoping all was well. So thank you for calling. Awesome, man. I'm, I'm so glad for that. And mm-hmm. so I just want to give you an update. Everything has been, I've been taking your advice. Um, I would say like 80% of it, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. as far as taking her phone um, and all the social media is gone. Um, she does still use her phone for school, but when she comes home, she keeps it down on the kitchen counter, and she can use it when she's downstairs around us. Good and for surprisingly, you. Um, very little resistance to that, and it's actually almost become like um, second nature. Um, but I am starting, um, this going to get your advice on this, is that starting to give her little privileges back as far as a little bit more use of the phone, because she's actually been doing really good, and mm-hmm. um, I've definitely seen a change in her. I just want to see, I don't want to take too big a step, but like one of the things is on the weekends, I let her take her phone upstairs, but she still has to bring it down for the at nighttime. And I still monitor her phone. And I want to come out there one day and kind of get probably in the morning service, just kind of introduce you. I used to go out there years ago at your church. You may remember oh. me when you see me. But um, yeah, so anyhow, that's what I was thinking about bringing her out there with you and then, you know, just so you could see her and, like I said, see her in person. But I definitely have seen changes in her and just Good. trying to see where I should do as far as giving her some little baby steps back. And she hasn't really okay. asked for it much, you know, yeah. so. Well, yeah. let, let me let me give let me say something. And we're, we're running out of time here. But but you warn your granddaughter that when I see her, she has to hug me. I'm going to hug her. OK. Sounds good. Robert, Sounds good. Robert, uh, I think rewarding them for, for, for doing good things is, is, is biblical. I think it's a good thing. Um, the only thing I would say is, look, you've earned my trust. Don't lose it. And, and just let her know that you're watching and you're pleased and uh, you're praising the Lord for the work that's being done in her heart. So uh, I, I think it's reestablishing some freedom is a good thing. Good for you, Robert, and you have no idea what a what a relief this call is today. Hey, that's it for the week. We will not be live on Monday because of the holiday, so Tuesday I'll be back on AM 630 The Word. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Right.